0: Uh, When Moses was uh, speaking about the word of God, uh, he said this to the children of Israel, take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you, they are your life. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you do not waste words. Um, moreover, Father, your words to us uh, are not idle, and they are our life. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grant us hearts that are willing to listen and to submit to all that you have to say, that we might indeed enjoy life with you as your children, now and forever. Amen. Well, I wonder if you're someone who likes routine, a regular pattern to your day or week, uh, a set order uh, to how you get something done. Uh, A routine can be comforting. I always go and see so-and-so for coffee on that day in that same place at that time each week a routine can be rewarding Uh, ask any vegetable gardener it's the annual routine which leads to the harvest as a young teenager I remember my routine coming in from school I've put this under rewarding Uh, when I came in from school I'd have to get changed out of my uh, school uniform my mom made me do that so it was get changed food then i'd watch a little bit of tv laurel and hardy or something around sort of 26 then it was more food then i'd do my homework then i'd have food then i'd watch the nine o'clock news and then i'd have some more food (laughs) i loved those evenings when i wasn't doing anything else it was great a routine can be rewarding a routine can be useful now i think it's often the case for christians Um, we want to read the bible and pray each day but we perhaps don't have enough routine around first thing in the morning or at some other point in day in the day so it doesn't happen as often or as well as we would like it to so routine can be useful a routine can be necessary I'm thankful that people looking after our nuclear power stations have routines so things are safe. Uh, Routines can be loving, Um, a care routine for an elderly loved one. Routines can be unloving, Uh, the selfish and inflexible new husband uh, assumes that he can carry on his bachelor routines even though now he has a wife he is supposed to be serving. Well as we conclude these three sermons uh, on Nahum we're going to be led by him and the Bible as a whole to a very particular routine a specific pattern of life and that routine that pattern will at the same time be comforting rewarding useful necessary and loving that's what we'll find it to be It'll be useful to us through the busyness and the, uh, what should we say, the relational intensity of the Christmas season. So many people, so close, all the time. Uh, But it'll also be useful when life returns to normal in the new year. And actually, it'll be a routine for the rest of our lives. It is, if you like, the Christian routine, As God presents it to us in the scriptures. So let's see how God's prophet Nahum helps us towards that. Uh, There are two bodies of people in view uh, throughout the book of Nahum. There's Judah, uh, that little kingdom tucked away around Jerusalem, the last few of God's people in that last bit of the land of Israel. was still intact and still self-governed. We're in the middle of the 7th century BC, before that first Christmas, so probably the 620s BC when Nahum writes. And all around this little kingdom of Judah, the Assyrian Empire, the second group, ran everything. They ran the whole Middle East. They'd overrun the rest of the land that God had promised to his people a century before. They're the local superpower. Nobody could stop them. Uh, In all the history of evil empires, the Assyrians are right up there in the way they treated their enemies. You can see some of that depicted in the British Museum, if you wish. The Assyrians are trying to strangle the little kingdom of Judah. It reminded me of when you build a big sandcastle on the beach and then you stand the family in it and the tide comes in and you, you get s- closer and closer together. Eventually, you um, get wet. Well, that's how Assyria have been treating Judah for 100 years. Now, in this situation, what do each of those parties think is happening? What does what do Judah think is happening? And what do the Assyrians think is happening? Well, just that. Judah are struggling under an evil power. That's how they understand themselves in the midst of that Assyrian pressure. The Assyrians, of course, they're confidently running the world and they're destroying nations all over the place and taking them over and plundering them. They're against Judah in particular, because Judah seems so insignificant. Uh, And it will continue. From an Assyrian point of view, there's nothing that could get in the way of the uh, progress and stability of their empire. And Nahum speaks straight into this situation. God speaks into it. What is God promising to do in Nahum? Well, he's promising to deliver his people from evil. We've seen that right through the book. And the other side of that coin is that he will judge evil Assyria. It's what the book's been all about. It's what chapter 3 is about as well. You'll see I've missed a row out. That's because the the Bible does tell us something else that's going on here. It gives us another perspective. That's very much the perspective of the book of Nahum. But it's worth just noting what Isaiah said uh, back in chapter 10 of his book. Because God has a view on what's happening as well. God says, Woe to the Assyrians, the rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. And the godless nation he's talking about there is Israel. But this is not what he intends. God's intentions and Assyria's intentions are very different. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. That's what Assyria thinks about what's happening. And Isaiah says when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem that's been done by the Assyrians whom God is wielding then God will say I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. So this is true but this is true as well. What has God been doing, judging them, judging Judah for its godlessness, the pressure that's coming, and wielding Assyria at his will, God using evil to judge evil. Now, there's no time to explore that really now, but that is a very helpful perspective to remember in a world that is full of evil. God is doing this all the time. He's using evil to judge evil. Back to Nahum's day. Uh, God is promising to deliver his people from evil at this moment and to bring judgment on Assyria. So what should the people do? Well, we've seen this in previous weeks, haven't we? And chapter 1, verse 7, the people should trust. And he's already read that verse to us. Chapter 1, verse 15, God says, celebrate that I'm delivering from you from evil and destroying evil. Be full of hope because the splendor of Judah will return, 2, verse 2, and 3, verse 19, as we read this morning. Clap your hands at the fall of evil. But what about the Assyrians? What should they do in the light of what God is saying through Nahum? Um, There's only two books in the Bible that end with a question. Uh, Nahum is one of them, as we saw, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? But both books are about Nineveh. Nineveh is at the heart of both books. You will remember that Jonah ends with a question. That's all about Nineveh too. They're the only two books in the Bible that end with a question. And in both books, God's promise to destroy evil Nineveh is announced. Jonah and Nahum. Jonah comes 120 years before Nahum. In Jonah, God asks, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? And God had judgment announced to them out of concern for them and they repented and they were spared the judgment. But 120 years on, The Lord, who, remember, chapter 1, verse 3, is slow to anger. Well, 120 years on, his patience is coming to an end. Now, that is not in any uncontrolled way like ours does, where we we just add enough. But it's in that measured, deliberate, and powerful way that we saw in chapter 1. His patience is coming to an end. The time has come for judgment to fall on Nineveh. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. Chapter 3, verse 19. So it seems for Assyria, it's too late for anything. Now all this means that there are two audiences for Nahum's prophecy. Two different kinds of people get to listen to what is being said. In the same breath, we find that God is comforting the faithful ones, those who trust him, Those who have found him to be a refuge in times of trouble, those he cares for, chapter 1, verse 7. God is good. He is comforting the faithful ones through this book. Remember, Nahum's name means comfort. But in the same breath, God is discomforting the evil ones, the Assyrians. I struggled with, uh, uh, you've got to take discomforting in the strongest possible sense. If you were listening to chapter three, it's very discomforting. But in the same breath, with the same words, depending whether you're somebody who trusts God or somebody who doesn't, the words of Nahum are either overwhelmingly comforting or overwhelmingly discomforting. We'll work through chapter 3 to discover this. Verses 1 to 4. I've tried to summarise them uh, as best I can. God knows what evil is and how to deal with it. Verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The murdering, deceit and stealing of the Assyrians is known to God in verse 4 that classic biblical imagery of unfaithfulness the prostitute and the witch betraying people and working against God and his good purposes the lust and the spell and enslaving nations in that darkness God knows what evil is And he knows how to deal with it, verses 2 and 3. Sights and sands of battle. That's what's there, it's the crack of whips, the clatter, the galloping, the jolting. And the glinting of all the metal that was on show. The sights and sands of battle from which there is no escape. Many casualties. Piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. There is no escape from God dealing with evil. Now, see, if you've been under the power of great evil for a long time and you know that you are powerless, things have become hopeless, then there's a comfort that God knows what evil is and he knows how to deal with it for you. But there is a great discomfort if you're on the wrong side of that. There is nowhere to hide from the God who declares verses 1 to 4. Adam and Eve may have tried to hide behind the bush. There is nowhere to hide. Verses 5 to 7. God is against those who are against him and his people. Uh, Right back from uh, the promise to Abraham, way back, um, God had promised his people, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. In, In the second verse of Nahum, God is jealous for his people who bear his name. He is for them what a comfort to know that God has pledged himself to us as his people but this is the last thing you want to hear if you are against the Lord this is how the book of Nahum works in verses 9 and 11 of chapter 1 we're told uh, on two occasions the Assyrians are against the Lord. And in 2 verse 13 and 3 verse 5, those two against the Lord get their reply from the Lord. I am against you. Those are the words that no one wants to hear. In all their pride and boasting as a great empire, they will be internationally exposed for what they are and shamed for what they've done. That's the imagery of the lifting of skirts and the nakedness, the shame, the contempt. Nobody will come to help them. Nineveh is in ruins. Who will even mourn for her? Where can I find any anyone to comfort you. Comfort and discomfort, depending where you're sitting. Uh, 8 to 11, um, dips into uh, history here. 663 BC, the great city of Thebes in Egypt fell. Despite their great defences and all their allies, they looked invincible. The future seemed secure, but they were conquered. It happened before to the very strongest What a great comfort to little Judah. Assyria, so powerful for so long. It can happen. And to Assyria, discomfort, you'd be a fool to think that you're any better than Thebes or that you'll fare any better. You're not invincible, you're not secure, you will be conquered. Uh, verses 12 to 17, no amount of effort will stop God completing this. Uh, Their fortresses, the fortresses of Assyria will hang on, but they're only going to hang on like fresh fruit on a tree. You shake the tree and it falls off. That's how we pick our damsons uh, at the vicarage. I get to shake the tree and we have blankets on the floor. and pick all, That's how secure the fortresses are for Assyria. Their soldiers are no more use. They're described as weaklings in verse 13. Uh, The word there is actually women. Look at your troops. They are like women. So before you get upset, the point is they're not trained. They're not ready for battle. They've never done it before because no women fought in those days. An experienced enemy will simply march through the troops of Assyria. So, mockingly in verse fourteen, um, the prophet says, "Why don't you? Why don't you? Why don't you just have a go at trying to strengthen your defences? You know, do some do some extra brickwork." Pointless. The fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It'll devour you like a swarm of locusts. Similarly, you could um. In the in the way that you could, uh, you're going to be devoured by locusts. Even if you rebuild, it's pointless. It'll get you nowhere. Um, you're being devoured like, by by locusts as the enemy comes and beats the city. Perhaps you could try breeding like locusts instead to see if that helps. Multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts, sending merchants all around the world. Uh, creating strong allies, bringing much needed wealth and resources back to Assyria. Well, that's not going to help either because even if you breed like locusts, well, what happens when the sun comes out or when things get hot? They fly away and they stay away. Nobody knows where they are. Merchants or more soldiers or whatever all over the world won't do you any good. No amount of effort. Will avert God completing his work. Comforting to Judah. This is going to work. Assyria won't rise again and cause trouble. Discomfort if you're not one of the faithful ones. And then in verses 18 and 19, the leader of evil is addressed. All his commanders are exhausted and spent. They're lying down and uh, completely out of action. All his people are gone. There is no way back. This is the end of evil. And praise bursts out among the faithful ones. But it's discomforting if you're not one of the faithful ones. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall for who has not felt your endless cruelty. This historical moment in God's working with his people and Assyria, that reveals to us how the final defeat of evil should be viewed. It's a foreshadowing of the final destruction of evil and the final destruction of the evil one. Not just the king of Assyria, but the king of evil, if you like, the devil. And Jesus was very clear in his own ministry that there are only two groups of people hearing this news about Judgment Day. There are the faithful ones and there are the evil ones, the unfaithful ones. Jesus uses the language uh, of being sons of your devil, the father, your father, the devil, or being sons of his father. There's only two groups of people who hear this message. Uh, In Revelation chapters 17 to 20, really, um, that final judgment is described. It's something that Nahum is foreshadowing and looking forward to. But for John, writing the book of Revelation, he knows it's, it's, it's when Jesus Christ returns. And if you read those chapters, you will see the same language picked up. You'll see language of prostitutes, been drunk, blood, fire, merchants, and magic spells. Nahum is foreshadowing for us that great day of judgment, the final day. But interestingly, in Revelation 19, it's not just clap. It's clap, clap, clap in Revelation 19. The NIV has an interesting heading. It says the threefold alleluia for the destruction of Babylon. The faithful ones, Yes. But what discomfort for those not ready for that day. There will be celebrations over the destruction of evil and the destruction of the evil one. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, how are you approaching that day? It's coming. We saw two weeks ago, it's been proved The resurrection of jesus proves that he is returning the apostle preaches how are you approaching this day that's coming well let's use 2 peter chapter 3 to help see some people just aren't discomforted by it at all That was probably a whole load of the Assyrians weren't discomforted by it at all. Because if you're discomforted by it, you might respond in some other way, as we'll see. But some people just are not discomforted by the fact that Jesus is coming back to destroy all evil. Uh, Peter talks about them. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They're staying on that side. They will say, where's this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That's how the Assyrians thought about their empire and their world and their life. It will just carry on. Nobody's going to bring us down. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of of the ungodly you can see the arrogance and the confidence of the Assyrians but if we're, some, if we're somebody who is not discomforted by the prospect of God's judgment falling then we're in a precarious position heaven and the heavens and earth are reserved for the destruction of all evil so that might be a first way of approaching um how are you approaching that day which is coming Uh, just not discomforted about it at all just carry on as if nothing happening you might be really discomforted by it Because you know that you haven't lived as you should have lived. And so if all evil is going to be destroyed, if everything falling short of the glory of God is going to be removed, then how am I going to escape on that day? Do you remember back in chapter 1, Nahum had said, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? Well, Peter goes on. This day is coming. A thousand years are like a day to the Lord. So the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to respect, to repentance. You see, the book of Nahum and Revelation chapter 19 and similar chapters and the promise of Jesus that he will return in judgment to destroy the ungodly should be very, very discomforting for us. But it's not yet quite too late to do anything. The whole point of the delay is so you can have time to repent to turn back to the Lord, to go from being identified with evil ones to being identified with faithful ones. But it's urgent because he'll come like a thief in the night, unexpected. We don't know when he'll come. There is no time for delay. But the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him if you're discomforted by the prospect of evil being destroyed and judged and you knowing how you have fallen short then it is the great work of jesus on the cross that he died for your forgiveness to deal with our evil so that when we stand before him it's already been dealt with and forgiven to repent means to turn to him and trust him for that very salvation which he won through his death being a faithful one means holding to jesus and he will hold to you when he comes and destroys evil the new testament tells us two things about jesus coming uh, and mentioned one of these already the reason the son of god was revealed was to destroy all the works of the evil one it also says christ jesus came into the world to save sinners So you might, not be, you might not be discomforted at all as you approach this day. You might be discomforted, well, turn to Jesus. If you have turned to Jesus, then you ought to be comforted by this day. As a faithful one, you will not perish. All evil will be destroyed and you will not perish. You'll never sin again. You'll never be sinned against again. You'll never be tempted. There is no death, mourning, crying or pain for the older order of things has passed away. So you can either not be discomforted, be discomforted and turn to Jesus and having turned to Jesus, be comforted not because of your own righteousness, but because he saved you out of his love and grace. Well, as a comforted one, as a faithful one, how are you now approaching that day? The answer is not sit back and put your feet up. Peter has something very important to say to the faithful ones as followers of Jesus. It's Peter who gives us this routine, this pattern for life that should mark all of us every day for the rest of our days. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. Holy. That means in a good way you won't fit in the world which is full of evil. We'll be distinct, we'll stand out, our choices, priorities will be different, the books we read, the way we spend our time. We'll be more thoughtful in speech and more kind in action. Driven by our desire to please God and to be like God, holy and godly lives. We take our lead from him in marriage, at work, when we're thinking about our ambitions and our hopes. Your routine for life is going to be very different from lots of other people. And as we do this, we're always looking forward. Forward to that hope that evil is going to be destroyed. We know we're going somewhere. We're not lost. We have direction. And we're going to be patient with evildoers too. Because that's like God. We will want people who are not yet belonging to Christ to come to repentance. Some of the distinctives of our routine of life will be helping people to come to Jesus conversations, invitations, what we support with our money. You might set up a Christian union in your school, college or workplace. Peter goes on. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, that's the home of righteousness coming, make every effort make every effort you know somebody somebody asked you what if somebody observed you what do you put your effort into what do you spend yourself on peter says make every effort because this day is coming to be found spotless blameless and at peace with him spotless in ourselves blameless before others at peace with god That means we're going to need be examining ourselves and not just sitting back and thinking we're, we're we're all right spotless is what we're aiming at we're going to be serving others blameless before them and we're be going to be confessing when we fall short make every effort to be at peace with him but what's that going to mean for your daily routine or your weekly routine, or your yearly routine. Um, one of my There's all sorts of things you do. Yearly routine, you might go and camp each year, Christian camp, either as a leader serving or as a youngster learning, growing as a Christian. Weekly, but well, we get together weekly, we have small groups weekly. What about those gatherings with non-Christians that you go to? What are the routines you want to get into to show your patience with the ungodly so that they might repent and to show your commitment to a holy and godly life? Perhaps most importantly, what daily routine do you need to put in place so that each day you are making every effort to be spotless, blameless and at peace with God? What do you need to set aside and start? What routines do you need? These routines, added in this kind of lifestyle, will bring comfort, reward, they'll be useful, they're necessary, this day is coming, and they will result in loving, being loving in life. let's do all this in the sure comfort that evil will be destroyed and we are heading to the home of righteousness, trusting in God's son, empowered by his spirit.